It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search it out is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Episode 139, Five Kings and a Queen in Early 9th Century B.C. The history of the early 9th century B.C. was impacted greatly by six very prominent individuals. Each of them will make a mark on their generation and the history of the world and their nations. Some for the amazing good and some for notorious evil. Each of them will be responsible for delivering great notable words, each bearing fruit for good or evil. Some will deliver massive military blows and conquest. Others will be soundly defeated. Some will leave a spiritual legacy of God's power and testimony, and others only death and shame. With the fading away of the Egyptians, after soundly finding their humility with defeats by Abijah and Asa, the nations are free to do as they please, and with it ambitions arise from the once conquered nations. 900 B.C. was marked by peace in Judah and strife in northern Israel. Assyria was making its mark on the world already with the taking of Babylon, and with all the city-states it controlled, Assyria was already the nation to be feared the most. Aram was expanding, but only into northern Israel when possible, and against its powerful neighbor Assyria to the east, its expansion had stopped. Omri made sure to solidify his kingdom before his death with the new capital, reduction of Philistine territory, and the subjugation of his neighbor and breadbasket of Moab. Also, he did something reminiscent of Solomon. He made friends with Tyre. He even made an arranged marriage for his son Ahab to the princess of Tyre, if you want to call her that, whose name was Jezebel. This brought great commercial ties and wealth to his kingdom. To ally oneself to a naval power has benefits, but this alliance doesn't have the ring of the blessing of Hiram of Tyre was to Solomon. Instead, it rings of soul ties and destruction for northern Israel. Alright, to our characters over the next months. To imagine the beginning of the 9th century BC was marked by the birth of six babies, and to compare them and to consider them as infants at this point is quite interesting. And this is going to be our introduction to the key players of the early 9th century BC. We start with Ben-Hadad. Ben-Hadad was born in Damascus in modern Syria. His father is king, and the kingdom of Damascus, or Aram, was doing quite well, being at a trading crossroads. The kingdom was militarily ambitious and was finding itself more and more involved in world politics as it expanded into modern Turkey, Ben-Hadad was probably raised to be a king and a man of privilege. Considering his future policies and his direct reports or sub-kingdoms, he's a man of great power and influence and incredibly ambitious. He probably had great schooling in the military arts. And he's going to be aggressive with Ahab and want more and more from him. There's going to be a constant squeeze put on to the weakest neighbor, whoever it is. Now that northern Israel has basically taken and oppressed Moab, This left the Arameans only to expand into Israel or modern Turkey. 
but to expand east was not an option due to the Assyrians. Ben-Hadad, as a child, would have learned statecraft, the sword, and things that were known for kings in his age. He would have received presents from his family of gold and treasures, ornate swords, and would have learned the bow and the art of the sword quite early. The wealth of the kingdom would have allowed him to have the finest teachers, and religiously he would have learned about his religion, and he would have been a practicer of the customary religious arts of his day and culture. Being only generations from the empire of David and the invasions of Egypt, he was only too keen at the power of militaries, and would have not been a pushover militarily. He would have learned to fight and would have had the knowledge and education of strategy and statecraft. Aram, stuck between Israel, who stood above Egypt, and Assyria to the east, was no piece of cake to manage strategically. For this reason, and for fear of their kingdom, Ben-Hadad would have been taught to be shrewd in foreign politics. A short distance to the east, in Nimrod, Shalmaneser III would rule Assyria. He was born around 900 BC, but could be as late as about 880 BC. The Assyrians were an organized warlike people. Check out what William Durant said about these guys. It's extremely intense. They took their common language and their arts from Samaria, but modified them later into an almost undistinguishable similarity to the language and arts of Babylonia. Their circumstances, however, forbade them to indulge in the effeminate ease of Babylon. From beginning to end, they were a race of warriors, mighty in muscle and courage, abounding in proud hair and beard, standing straight, stern, and solid on their monuments, and bestriding with tremendous feet the East Mediterranean world. Their history is one of kings and slaves, wars and conquests, bloody victories and sudden defeat. Shalmaneser III would have been trained in war, siege warfare, in contact sport and violent conquest. The culture of Assyria was probably the biggest motivator in his childhood development. Terror and power projection was everywhere in Assyria. They believed in the power of terror and bragged about their violence and horrible atrocities, for it caused cities to fear them, and it worked in many cases causing submission without even conflict, but in other cases it causes mass resistance. Shalmaneser III grew up in a city and empire where women were marginalized and men dominated every aspect of society. Imagine the young prince walking with his tutors in the city, and he stops at a monument. He asks his teacher, what is this monument and what is it for? His teacher responds, this is the moment and statue commemorating your father's slaughter of the desert people. It tells he decapitated their leaders, enslaved their women and children, and deported to the east who was left. And he took their stuff, and he made piles of corpses. Young Shalmaneser III, who was surrounded by this type of propaganda, took the bait, shook his head, and he could have even said, very good. And on to the next question, what is this other statue for, my teacher? The Assyrians loved to brag about their atrocities. Not covering them up, they advertised them to show their power. Now do you see why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh? He hated these guys because they would show up and destroy life, deport people, and take their stuff. 
This was the upbringing of Shalmaneser III. To the west of Syria and Aram, in the place of modern Lebanon, Tyre ruled a fairly small city-state, but it had the wealth and prestige of a large state. The forest of Lebanon it controlled, and the island fortress of Tyre was a spectacular sight. Completely enriched in the days of Solomon, Tyre was only growing in prominence and influence. Something did occur around this time, though, in Tyre. The 9th century BC saw a radical shift in their religious philosophies. While Tyre was incredibly prosperous with its fleets and ocean commerce, it was experiencing a religious renewal of sorts. Not in the good kind, Tyre would become the place for the reintroduction of radical Baal worship and its export. Not that it didn't exist, no, it's been continuing for centuries, but it's going to experience a great growth in population as it's going to be exported from Tyre, where it held prominence, to northern Israel, where it will soon hold prominence through the sword of Queen Jezebel. But at 900 BC, we've got to consider Jezebel, like all babies out of the womb, special, probably beautiful, and heartwarming to behold. She was probably the beloved of her parents who pampered her with gifts of exotic toys and craftsmanship. Her nursery was probably perfumed and dressed in purple to teach her royalty at a young age. She must have developed like most children and educated in the ways of her people, but there was a bit probably in her upbringing a re great religiosity in her faith to Baal. Her mother or father must have been quite devoted considering her bent later, but there must have been something awful that happened in her early, early years because of the hatred she will end up carrying. The hate she will carry will be so dark and menacing, we have to compare her to the worst of worst. Take someone like Adolf Hitler. If you look at his childhood, he had an abusive father, and there was severe racism in his blood. There was a, a demonizing, dreaming ambition that he had, combined with poison gas exposure in World War I, horrible PTSD, and a near-death experience that didn't result in repentance in the light, but deeper demonizing darkness. With all this in mind, we've got to consider one of the worst women in known history must have had traumatizing hate in her blood. Her childhood is lost to history, but could it be something as terrible as... She had a beautiful younger brother who she grew up with years and came to truly love this child. But this child was taken from her and sacrificed in the fire to Baal. This traumatizing wound penetrated, could have penetrated so deeply, combined with insatiable unforgiveness, drove her to the arms of dark demonization. Now combine this radical trauma and open rune, fill it with controlling manipulation learned from her parents through statecraft of a rich island nation, and the language of control and manipulation from her mother and father. And then as she gets older, add a whole lot of lust and vanity and idol worship, and we end up with Jezebel, that turns the heart of her king and northern Israel against God. 
So the cute baby and child gets traumatized by idol worship and nearby child sacrifice, and she gets raised by the court of manipulation and control, and we end up with Jezebel. Nasty, nasty, nasty. Get ready. She's going to start ordering the deaths of God's prophets in short order. Jezebel's politically married off to Tyre's southern neighbor, northern Israel. Political marriages have been common throughout history, and in this case, politically, it served Omri well. The political marriage united two kingdoms and brought great trade benefits, but it opened the door wide open to Baal worship in northern Israel. Now, Ahab to the south is the son of Omri, and to be the next king of northern Israel. He will reign over 20 very politically active years. He's a very active man and very industrious with his time. He continues his father's oppression of the Moabites, which will come to bite him later. But in the short term, it had great economic advantages. In the fortress of Samaria, during and after its construction, Ahab was raised. He would have seen a very active father, Omri, fighting wars and conducting military conquests. As Samaria took shape as a huge city on a hill, Ahab saw the influx of riches into northern Israel, and Ahab experiences the benefit of these riches and came to understand he would be the true beneficiary of this kingdom. A palace would be built in Samaria, and it would be beautiful and white, called the Palace of Ivory. In this palace, Ahab married his wife Jezebel, and the two would reign Israel. Ahab's going to become a strange character, quick to pick up a sword and fight an enemy, but at the same time would act bizarre and strange like in the incident of Nabos' vineyard, when he cried because he couldn't get the man's vineyard. A man who was quick to repent, but foolishly gullible and easy to convince to do evil. An idol worshiper if he was swayed that way, but a repentant when he saw the power of God but never steadfast in anything but the blowing of the wind. In fact, he was the perfect king for Jezebel. She knew how to get what she wanted from him and how to manipulate him. Ahab would become a strange combination of a man with excellent gifts and talents and abilities, combined with utterly no fear of the Lord and character. When faced with judgment, he would repent. When faced with a pleasure in sin, the next day he would go that way. Whatever direction the wind blowed, he followed. No personal conviction, only the wind of carnal humanity and the direction of whatever spiritual voice is talking to him. This is King Ahab. To the south of northern Israel and Ahab was the direction of kingdom of Judah and the carrier of the banner of God's people. Asa, who started excellent, ended poorly but his son's name would be Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat would reign about the same time as Ahab, and he would outlive Ahab. He would have his victories on the battlefield, and we will have a moment on the battlefield that will rival Jonathan's attack on the Philistines as one of the worst military moves in history, but brilliant spiritual strategies of all time on the battlefield. Jehoshaphat would have been born about the same time and raised near the temple of the Lord, his heritage would be the Lord's, and his faith would be exemplary. One could say he had great character, learning from his worship of God, but his biggest error would be a family weakness of his. He allowed his son to marry a daughter of Jezebel and Ahab, 
and he partnered with Ahab on more than one occasion. These actions show a flaw in Jehoshaphat that will allow himself to be manipulated by his more politically ambitious northern neighbor. I get the feel, and it may be wrong, but there was a bit of rejection combined with an inferiority complex that jumped on him here and there because he allowed agreements with Ahab. But this is probably a bit too early to pass judgment. We will see Jehoshaphat was a man of character, and he will finish well. But his greatest failures will come in his relationships with northern Israel. In fact, anyone who allies himself with Ahab and Jezebel will face the consequences. Jehoshaphat would have been in a good place with the reinstituted worship of Yahweh and Judah and the Levitical sacrifices and atoning for sin and the covering of God's presence from the temple in Jerusalem. For this reason, Jehoshaphat would have been more advantaged than any other king in his day. We will see in him some human struggles, but we will see in him a faithfulness to God that will remind us of a bit of David. I get the feel in Jehoshaphat there was an authentic authority that he carried combined with the humility learned through years of worshiping God. There is a scene later when Jehoshaphat is sitting with Ahab, and Ahab is bringing before him his prophets who prophesy, and Jehoshaphat says to Ahab, Is there not a prophet of the Lord in your kingdom? Jehoshaphat knows the Lord. He's not perfect, but he knows the Lord and discerns the phony from the authentic. I just laugh to consider this statement to the heathen king. Isn't there no prophet among you? What do you say? Is there a prophet among you? Maybe during Jehoshaphat's raising, the priest taught him to do what Samuel did and to listen to God, to speak to the Lord these words, Speak, Lord, for I am listening. Somehow this king was spared the end his father faced. Either he was kept from his father during his later years, or he learned what not to become, a man who falls away. In his later years, we will see Jehoshaphat in his finest. All right, we've saved our final character for last. And he's not a king, despite the title I said, uh, but it is message to king. So in a way, we're going to call Elijah a king for today. So we saved our final character for last, and we know so little about him, it's almost funny. So Ahab becomes king and does horrible things all of a sudden. In 1 Kings 17, it says, Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead went to Ahab and prophesied there would be no rain. There's no backstory. No one really know, seems to know what Tishbites or Tishbe is. At least we know he's from Gilead. So he grew up in northern Israel. We know tons from Elijah's character and actions later, but his youth is a total, total mystery. But I think that's the point above points of, above all points. Elijah was God's answer to the evils of Jezebel and Ahab. And where he came from, only the Lord knows, because he was sent by the Lord. Elijah's name means, my God is Jehovah. Isn't that appropriate? God used the weak to humble the strong. 1 Corinthians 1.27 But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. I like to consider Elijah an orphan. Most likely he wasn't. Maybe it's just me because he was just a total nobody that appears on the world stage. 
Isaiah 54, 13. All your children will be taught by the Lord, and great will be their peace. Elijah comes out of nowhere onto the world stage. He prophesies a three-year famine, which takes immediate effect. So he comes from Tishbe. The word Tishbite means captivity. Isn't that interesting? The land of captivity, out comes a prophet to show the people the light. Elijah will show the light to northern Israel in astounding fashion. Next episode, we begin with Jehoshaphat's revival in the south, and we lead into the great spiritual showdown between Elijah and Ahab, and speak to Ahab's actions as he becomes king. To conclude this episode of Message to Kings, let's discuss the Romans 5 effect. Romans 5.20 But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. In the case of Elijah, it speaks of when the darkness rises in the land, God arises in a powerful fashion. We've got to consider something. As Jehoshaphat and the Levites are being faithful in Judah, they're praying for their northern neighbor, and God's answer to their prayers will be the turning of their hearts through a powerful prophet. The rising up of a nobody to preach the gospel is a commonplace with Jesus. Using the nobodies of society and raising them to become the preachers of tomorrow is God's wonderful idea. We are to be the sons and daughters of God. Who better to bring a drug addict out of his addiction than a reformed drug addict? Who better to save a motorcycle gang member than an ex-Hell's Angel gang member? Who better to preach to those in prison than a reformed felon? Who better than a nobody of nobodies, raised in a land filled with demonic control and demonic captivity, to rise up and preach the gospel with signs and wonders? Thanks for joining us for this episode of Message to Kings. Feel free to visit the website, messagetokings.com. Share the Facebook page, or if you want to chat, email us at messagetokings at gmail.com.